Welcome to Writer Types, great conversations with today's top crime and mystery writers. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is my alibi, S.W. Loudon. Steve, it's another great show. That's right, and author Ted Bell shares our enthusiasm. Just listen to what he told his publicist when he agreed to be on the show. As long as they don't pull my fingers out, this could be really good for PR. And Victoria Helen Stone has some thoughts on one of us, but we won't say who. He's just an arrogant bastard. And we have yet another book giveaway. This time we ask five questions to Martin J. Weiss about his book, The Second Son, just released from our sponsor, Rare Bird Books. Other Rare Bird titles you might enjoy include Beethoven's Tenth by Richard Kluger, Criminal Zoo by Sean McDaniel, and Ava Monte Alegre's Body on the Backlot. Visit rarebirdbooks.com for more. And Steve, I remember you recommending Criminal Zoo a while back. That's definitely one that should be on people's radars. And speaking of uh, books you recommend, have you read anything good lately? Yes, I read a book called Speed of Life by James Pate. And this is one of those books that seems like it was specifically written for me. I mean, come on, it's named after a David Bowie song. The book is set in Memphis and New York in the late 70s and revolves around the death of a musician named Tommy. Uh, His former bandmate, Oscar, doesn't believe it was an overdose, so he goes out searching for the truth. Now, I'm not sure if our listeners are fans of the legendary power pop band Big Star, but because the story is partially set in Memphis, where the band was from, I couldn't help casting the lead singer, Alex Chilton, in the role of Oscar, and his bandmate, Chris Bell, in the role of Tommy in my head as I was reading. And I, and, I, and I thought this was just my weird mind creating imaginary connections. But then I found out that the author did base his characters on members of Big Star. Nice. So that's proof that being a lifelong fanboy of an obscure 70s band can really pay off in the long run. Right, Eric? <laughs> it only took, what, 47, 48 years to pay off? Just, just give me this one. <laughs> Anyway, Speed of Life is definitely worth a read if you love crime fiction and rock and roll as much as I do. How about you, Eric? What have you read? Uh, You know, I recently finished Relentless by Mike McCrary, and I've long been a fan of Mike's work. And this one is just, I was sweating at so many points (laughs) through this book because it's one of these stories where a guy makes one bad decision and then his life just goes into the toilet. And at every turn, I was just like, go to the police or something. Try to get yourself out of this. Try just desperately wanting this guy to turn things around and to pull it out in the end. And oh, Mike McCurry is so relentless to this character, frankly. <laughs> well, so then Mike went ahead and actually wrote the autobiography. Yes. <laughs> A lot of it smacks deeply of uh, lived experiences, I will say. (laughs) Well, our first guest is the author of several thrillers. Uh, Ted Bell writes the Alex Hawks series, and Bell has been hailed as a modern Ian Fleming. He's hit the New York Times bestseller list 10 times. His new novel, Overkill, is out now and features a very real and very timely nemesis. Your latest Alex Hawk novel, Overkill, has uh, quite the interesting protagonist. You use the real Vladimir Putin, who's, who's plotting to steal uh, all the gold in Switzerland. So uh, what we want to know is, 
is your name on some kind of list over in Russia that you should be very concerned about? <laughs> Actually, when when I went to Russia to research Putin, the, my my friend at uh, who works for the government, shall we say, said, "You're not going by yourself." I said, "I'm just a spy novelist. <laughs> what are they going to do? Pull my fingernails out?" And he <laughs> said, "Yeah, well, he said just be careful on landing in Moscow and leaving Moscow. Landing was no problem. Leaving, I got pulled off out of the line checking in." by a woman in a, in a dark blue suit who took me to a little room. And I was thinking as I was going following her all through the airport, as long as they don't pull my fingers out, this could be really good for PR. <laughs> so anyway, she, it was a stick up. She said, you can't leave, your ticket's no good. I said, "How? what's that mean? She said, your ticket is no good. I said, it's, in, it's no, I have it, it's right here. She said, listen, it's no good. I said, well, what do I do? Buy a new ticket from me for cash. Oh man. It's all true what we've heard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joking aside, are there any pitfalls or challenges to writing ripped from the headlines thrillers in 2018? No, I've, I've sort of been trying to do that ever since the first one. I keep my eye on, on politics and I keep my eye on what's going on in the world. And, uh, and I, I try to be ahead, you know, out front. So my first Putin book was in 2005. I think he's interesting. I try to be nice to him in my book so I don't get killed. But. <laughs> well, you're now 10 books into your Alex Hawk series at this point. Yeah. Yeah. When you started, did you have a specific number of books in mind? Yeah, one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had, no, I had no contract. I had no deal. I had no you know, clue that I would even get it published, but I did. And it was called Hawk. And uh, Simon Schuster bought it within 24 hours. So, wow. So, are you thinking ahead? And if if it goes for 25 or 30, you know you've got more plots ready. Well, 30 is going to be a stretch for me. <laughs> but 20, I can see 20. <laughs> in addition to the Hawk novels, you've also written uh, two books in the Nick McIver time travel series uh, for for kids. How did that come about? I mean, and, and how, how is that approach different, you know, coming off of these, you know, big action thrillers and then turning and writing for a younger audience? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I was living in London and uh, my daughter was in the fourth grade and she was reading these R.L. Stein horror comic books. And I said, wait a minute, I want to I want her to read, you know, something like uh, Treasure Island or Black Beauty or, you know, the kind of stuff I read as a kid. And there were no books for kids that I thought. Kids could, couldn't really read Treasure Island now because it's so old and arcane, they wouldn't know the words. So I said, I'm going to write a Robert Louis Stevenson-type novel for 8, 9, 10, 12-year-olds. So that's the first book I wrote, it was Nick of Time. And it's about, it's on the eve of the Nazi invasion in the Channel Islands, and it, the, the, the kid is 11 and the sister's 8, and their father's a lighthouse keeper, secretly spying on U-boat activity for Churchill. And then it just goes from there, and it's great. It ends on the, like, the verge of the invasion, and then uh, the the time pirate takes up with the invasion, so they're pretty cool. I'm, I'm really proud of them. Do you find that a lot of nine, ten year olds are really uh, chomping at the bit to read about Nazis? Is that a <laughs> is that a, a missing niche? <laughs> Nazis never grow old. I decided I'm going to put everything in that first one that I want. I want. I got Nazis. I got pirates. I got time travel. 
It sounds like we share the same thing and like we we all write in a way to sort of live out those fantasies and like you're talking about like if if you when you finally have the opportunity to sit down and write especially those early novels is it it really like you're just trying to get out all the stuff that, and live that fantasy on the page you create the world you've always wanted to live in or, or, or the boy you've wanted to be or you know um, yeah be a hero i said i want to write a book about heroism and love of country and family and taking care of your little sister having a dog knowing how to sail a boat knowing how to clean a rifle knowing you know what all the stuff that i thought would make a kid that you know the kind of kid i would want to be so yeah it was about old fashioned values uh, i know you mentioned living in london and that prior to writing books you had a long and very successful career in advertising how did that career prepare you to be a best selling author that's a great question. I would say, because um, I was working mostly in, in filmmaking, you know, we we're making commercials. I, I think I learned about compression and storytelling. In, in, you know, in 30 or 60 seconds, you had to know who was the dad, what kind of guy was he, and you had to get it, the characters you know, firmly delineated and established right from the get-go. So that's one thing. And then, you know, I, since I had clients all around the world, I traveled all around the world, and I got to go to, you know, hotels and, and nightclubs and restaurants all, everywhere for 30 years and it just gave me this big world that I have an understanding of. It, you talk about uh, you know efficient storytelling but uh, you look at a book like Overkill I mean that's that's a meaty looking book it's 4 or 500 pages <laughs> are you, are you not following your own rules? <laughs> no. I, I didn't say they couldn't be long. I just oh. <laughs> <laughs> I get, well, and after after a world of creating thirty second spots, did you maybe you you need to go a little epic just for a change of pace, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just go until it, until it's over. In fact, I was trying to make Overkill shorter. Obviously, I didn't succeed, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I just tell the story. Well, you mentioned a little bit, uh, you know, your international travels. I mean, when you go to seek out the next location for the next Alex Hawk novel, are you letting the plot sort of drive the location? Or are you trying to maybe let the location drive the plot a little bit? Good question. In, 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 I tell you, in Overkill, I, my hero is not James Bond. My hero is Ian Fleming. And, uh, and I have read every biography and every letter he wrote to his wife Anne and everything. I know the guy intimately, even though I never met him. You know, I, I discovered Bond books uh, the summer I was 13, and I read all of them like four times. Just kept, I just couldn't get enough of them. And, um, and my favorite was Goldfinger. And I love the idea that somebody had presumption to think they could rob Fort Knox. So I always kind of want to one-up Fleming. So I said, what would be harder than that? I know, getting all the gold out of Switzerland <laughs> and being alive. So that's what the that's the foundation of the overkill plot. Steve, I think that's that's a great motivation for for writers is one upmanship. It really drives us, right? Yeah. I'm going to set my sights on Ted Bell. <laughs> Eric, speaking of timely books, you just published the second volume of Unloaded: Crime Writers Writing Without Guns. That's right, I did. Thank you for mentioning it. Uh, you know, I got two dozen more crime writers together to write stories with no guns in them, to ask for sensible gun laws in this country and an end to the runaway gun violence that we see every day. Uh, and to celebrate that, for our unpanel this time, we asked three of those contributors 
if it was at all hard for them to write a crime story with no guns in it. I'm John McGoran, author of the Doyle Carrick thrillers Drift, Dead Out, and Dust Up, as well as the YA science fiction thriller Spliced and its sequel Splintered, which is coming out in 2019. I'm also the co-host of the Liars Club Oddcast, a podcast about writing. For me, it wasn't difficult to write a story with no guns, and I realized as I was writing my story for the anthology that unusual methods of crime and murder has been a bit of a theme running through a lot of my work. Uh, don't get me wrong, a lot of my stories have plenty of gunplay, but I enjoy thinking of unusual or unexpected ways of killing people. Writing as D.H. Dublin, I authored a trilogy of forensic thrillers, and in those especially, the unusual and unexpected M.O.s were a big part of the fun of writing them, and I think reading them too. I don't know if any of my books are really straight mysteries, but they all have an element of mystery to them, and the more unusual and clever the method of the crime, the more clever and satisfying the solution of that crime. So for me, it was a lot of fun from start to finish. My name is Andrew Case. I am the author of The Big Fear and A Falling Knife. My short story, Habeas Corpus, appears in Unloaded 2. There are two reasons that it's challenging to write a crime story without a gun in it in America in 2018. Guns are so prevalent and so common in this country that it's almost impossible to think of a place where a gun would not be present. My story takes place in the holding cell of a federal jail, and while there would be people with guns in that world, in that room, in that building, the people who were in my story would not have guns, and that's how I was able to manage that challenge. The second challenge is that you're tempted to be so clever and so cute as to come up with a way someone dies that doesn't involve a gun, and the worry is that the audience will rely so much on figuring out how you killed someone without a gun that you don't pay attention to the underlying story itself. And so I was very conscious of the idea of telling a story about a person and his psychological state and his personal history that did not turn on how it was that murder took place without a gun. My name is Lori Rader Day. I'm the author of Under a Dark Sky, The Day I Died, Little Pretty Things, and The Black Hour. For me, it wasn't difficult at all to write a story with no guns because even though I write about crime, guns feature almost not at all in my books. In my first book, The Black Hour, there's a gun being waved around at one point, but for the most part, I'm more interested in the kinds of crimes where a found object is the weapon of choice. It's not a planned murder, but a crime of passion. And even then, what I'm really interested in is the aftermath, not the crime itself. How do average people encounter murder? How do they react? Who do they turn to? How do they survive it? I don't have any interest in guns myself, and so it's easy for me to work around their presence in most of the stories I write. I'm far more interested in the strength of the characters when they don't have a gun in their hands. Well, Steve, it's time for another five questions with. But my first question is for you. Who are we asking questions to this time? Martin J. Weiss, author of The Second Son, hot off the presses from Rare Bird Books. 
You're an award-winning commercial director, and you've also written and directed feature-length films. So why did you decide to add novelist to your resume in the last few years? Was it the mainstream fame or all of the money? It was, uh, yeah, the big money and the bucket list. I wasn't quite done with uh, the last few items, so now I'm ready to go. And, and how many books in are you at this point? Well, I did, I did a novelization of a screenplay that uh, is, is kind of what got me hooked. And um, so I, I uh, did the next one, uh, The Second Son, and uh, my one after that is called Flamingo Coast, and that's coming out in January, and I'm simultaneously working on the next one. Well, your latest novel, The Second Son, is a techno thriller set along the California coastline between uh, Silicon Valley and Silicon Beach. What inspired you to center a story around this controversial app called Stalker? Technology fascinates me, and I'm always uh, loving how the apps and the devices that we have are trying to make our lives easier and better. And I just started thinking about what is the fallout to these things? What, what could go wrong? And so I, I made up a, uh, an app called Stalker, which was the ultimate transparency app, which allowed people to find out anything they wanted to find out about somebody. And it could be used for you know, stalking ex-boyfriends and girlfriends to finding how much your boss made. And, and the creators of the app uh, had good intentions. Uh, they thought that this would, would be a great thing until the main protagonist's life falls out of uh, favor. His uh, fiance leaves, his uh, twin brother leaves, and he has to find out what happened. And he uses the, the app to find out. And what he finds out kind of teaches him that the technology may not be uh, all good. Do you have any personal social media horror stories that you want to share with us? Yeah, um, when I joined Facebook, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not not really, um, but you know, it was really interesting. I was spending a lot of time in Santa Monica when I was writing this and I was overhearing a lot of conversations in cafes and you know, the te technology world was like the the way Hollywood used to be and everybody would, you know, wanted that next big break and that next big technology and I just thought the ethos was just really ripe and, and, and it just kind of intrigued me, so I just I dove in and did all the research I can on the Silicon Beach and and all the way up to Silicon Valley. It's it's just a really really neat um, setting I thought for a story. Well, your book focuses on twin brothers Ethan and Jack Stone. What, what was the weirdest thing you've learned about twins doing research on this book? That's a really good question. I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of legends and folklore about twins that are. Uh, separated at birth and then they grow up the same they either both turn into be criminals or they what I what I used and what I, I thought was even more fascinating is that so many twins don't know anything about their birth order they don't they don't know who's the firstborn who's the secondborn and, and parents keep it from them because the meaning of it differs among, amongst different cultures in Europe primogeniture law and inheritance law really focuses on that and I thought that was really intriguing you know, you know, what if somebody, <laughs> if it came down to inheritance or which it does a little bit in the, in the book, I just thought that was that was something that um, I wanted to explore more. Even if it's only like a five minute window, that can make all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, it crazy. does. And, and, and people put a lot of weight on, on firstborn and secondborn. So who would you cast in a few of the lead roles for the film version of The Second Son? Uh, Channing Tatum was uh, referenced once in the book uh, for the twins that they kind of looked like him. And, and coincidentally enough, uh, his production company was the first to 
uh, reach out and ask about the uh, the film rights uh, for, for the second son. So uh, I'll go with him until he uh, turns it down. <laughs> There's an Englishman who's one of the partners. Um, uh, the character's uh, name is Bailey, and I thought uh, Ricky Gervais would be great for him because he's he's pretty comedic. Uh, as far as far as Brooke, uh, who's who's the female lead, I, I kind of had in the, in the back of my head Emma Stone with an English accent. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to this coming to theaters next summer, right? Yeah, it'll be really quick, I'm sure. <laughs> Eric, that guy seems like a very fun guy to hang out with. And I read Second Son, and I can tell you it is a fantastic techno thriller. Well, if Writer Types listeners want their own copy of The Second Son, autographed by the author, Martin will write his name in it and personalize it to you. All you have to do is go over to the Writer Types Twitter page, at Writer Types. And tell us what you would name your social media thriller. Make sure to tag Writer Types and use the hashtag social media thriller for your chance to win. Well, Steve, what happens when a successful romance writer decides to write suspense novels? You end up with the creepy and intense books of Victoria Helen Stone. Her latest novel, Jane Doe, kept me up at night, and I know I'm not the only one. I just finished your latest psychological thriller, Jane Doe, and what I want to know is, what the hell is wrong with you? I, I probably shouldn't tell you that it was the easiest book I've ever written. <laughs> That's well, disturbing. <laughs> that is crazy. What, what's wrong in your head that it's easy to write a book from a first-person perspective like this about a sociopath? I'm not sure. As I was writing it the whole time, I was just like, this is way too much fun. I should really be disturbed about this. But the good news is I've been getting a lot of feedback from people who are also disturbed by how much fun they had reading it. So I feel better. <laughs> well, it it definitely was a very fun read. I, I tore right through it. You know what? It was very freeing writing the book. It's a woman who is has no sense of remorse, no self-consciousness, no, no second thoughts, which, you know, I mean, is unusual for any person really, but especially for women, you know, with the constant self-doubt and um, and and sort of piecing our way through the world and making sure we're always safe. And it was just, it was liberating to write it. Let me ask you this. Do you think men are really as easily manipulated as Jane makes them out to be? And, the, and I'm asking for, for a friend. For <laughs> I would not say that all men are as easily manipulated as uh, Stephen is in the book. But he's a man who walks around with a very sure sense of his place in the world and the place of other people in the world. So I think that somebody like that would be much easier to manipulate because he's just an arrogant bastard. So. Well, now, is, is now a good time to reveal your uh, inspiration for this character? Because his name is Steve. <laughs> I think she's, she's letting us know where, where this arrogant bastard came from. <laughs> Well, I don't know if you recognize yourself in it, but I will say that I specifically gave him the name Stephen as, uh, you know, no nicknames. He doesn't um, want people to feel that familiar with him because he's sort of considers himself above them. So uh, no Steve in the book, just Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not sure I feel any better, Victoria. <laughs> well, so we, we already kind of touched on on your relationship with writing this book. Was there any one scene in particular that sort of made you question where you were going with this character and this story? No, I will say I've never, I don't really write bloody sort of gory books. So the scene where she has him passed out because she slipped him a Mickey essentially and naked and vulnerable in bed and she can do anything and she realizes that she can do anything she wants in that moment. That was a very different kind. I mean, it, the book could have gone any kind of way at that point. I will tell you in a fit of insomnia, I read that scene at about 2.30 in the morning and I did not get back to sleep. <laughs> I was like, I'm not Steven. I'm not Steven. I'm not Steven. <laughs> so in addition to writing these three uh, dark suspense novels under the name Victoria Helen Stone, you are also a very successful romance writer uh, under the name Victoria Dahl. So what do crime and romance have in common? For me, the drive to mate and the drive to survive, those are the things that are driving human beings every single day. Everything else feeds into that. So um, those two um, drives have always been really compelling to me to read about. As I was reading your book, I was kind of thinking about genre a little bit, and I was wondering if you kind of consider this a mashup of the romance and thriller genres. Yeah, there is surprisingly a little bit of romance in the book um, and some soft feelings. Well, now let's not shy away from the fact you said soft feelings. There's also a good deal of sex in the book, Victoria. I mean, hachi machi, you, you really go for it. I mean, for myself, those scenes are always a little icky to write and I haven't done it very much, but I'll slaughter people left and right in my books. <laughs> seemingly without a problem but having written so many of those kind of scenes does it get easier or do you do you thrive on writing those kind of uh, romance or sex scenes yeah i've never had any problem with writing sex scenes and there are a lot of authors even romance writers who either don't want to write them or it's the most difficult part of writing them it was different writing it for jane doe though because there's no holding back for her. There's no shame involved. There's no second guessing or is he really going to like me or what, you know. So that was a very different experience for Jane Doe. And actually, I think the sex scenes in Jane Doe are much less filthy, I guess, than my romance novels. We're going to make the leap here. I think there's some kind of connection. You're originally from the Midwest and you often write about the Midwest. Yes. Uh, is there something to setting a story in a sort of unsuspecting place that works for a thriller to sort of uncover secrets where people might not see them? The thing I like about like psychological or emotional thrillers is the something happens to an everyday person and they have to figure out how to find their way out of it. And the idea that somebody is walking around living with these secrets that nobody else knows and just going on with their everyday life is fascinating to me. Did you grow up uh, wondering about your neighbors in that sense? Did you, is this something that's always been in you? Yeah, I actually had a sort of a strange family dynamic. My dad left before I was born. Um, but all of my other siblings in my family, they had come from a previous marriage. So they had a dad and all these relatives, but I didn't have a father. And in fact, when I would go to visit my grandparents, his parents, it was sort of a secret thing. I was kind of a secret baby. So uh, that's where 
a lot of that interest comes from. Uh, now, Victoria, you had said in the past, uh, your inspiration for your novel Half Past came to you in a dream. Is that a common way for book ideas to appear? No, for that book, it was actually related to my weird family. I uh, wanted it to be a family secret, and I had a dream that instead of not knowing my dad, that my mom wasn't really my mom. And I woke up from that dream and I thought, oh, well, that would be kind of a twist because most people, if you have a baby, you know that's your child as a woman. So um, not knowing who your mom is would be a different take on that. Do your pen names have different personas? Do you ever get confused about which person you are day by day? I don't, but uh, I purposefully choose the same first name, which is my first name. I don't know how people do it when they, I have lots of friends who I've known for years and then I found out, I find out that's not their name. And in fact, Helen is my mom's first name and I really wanted to get her name on the book because she's the one that introduced me to a love of reading. So, Well, how does your mother feel uh, by this honorific and say, mom, I've written 30 books and you weren't included, but now I really want to get you on a book. I'm going to write about murderous sociopaths. <laughs> she, um, I don't, she liked the first two Victoria Helen Stone books, but then she read Jane Doe and she was a little like, oh, that was different. <laughs> the Midwestern mom. So are you ever going to write under Victoria Doll again? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and get it out, sweetie. Get it out and then get back to what you're good at. Yeah, she never asked me that about the steamy romance novels, but uh, <laughs> she did seem a little disturbed by this one. <laughs> <laughs> So Steve, be honest with me, how steamy were the sex scenes in this book? Yeah, I, I love doing this podcast with you, Eric, but I I don't think we're ready for that conversation, buddy. And maybe <laughs> in a couple of years when you get a little older. <laughs> well, Steve, we can't end the episode without announcing our winner in the Name Laura's Book Contest. Now, as you recall, last episode, we were joined by author Laura McHugh, who's been having a little bit of trouble naming her next book, which is due out in 2019. So Steve, who was our winner? Well, Eric, the final decision about the book title has not been made yet, but Laura wanted to thank everybody for their great suggestions. And our winning suggestion is from Gerald So for his entry, Seed of Doubt. Congratulations, Gerald. Yes, congratulations. And a signed copy of whatever this book is gonna be called will be on its way to you next year. Well, Steve, that's another episode come and gone. What did we learn? Ted Bell taught us that the best writing motivation is to outdo your literary heroes. And Victoria Helen Stone taught us that not all sociopaths are named Steve, only a select few. And sometimes they're closer than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to our sponsor, Rare Bird Books. For more titles in crime, mystery, and beyond, visit rarebirdbooks.com. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. If you like what you hear, please find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us five stars, leave a quick review, and thanks for listening. <laughs>